This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to this special episode designed to, well, make the Thirty Years' War a little more digestible. The Thirty Years' War is an absolutely fascinating event and one which I believe you'll really enjoy listening to as a standalone series of When Diplomacy Fails, running simultaneously alongside the Korean War every Wednesday, as we already know. However, while I am really looking forward to revisiting this series again, I am aware that the first time around, things got a bit confusing at times. This wasn't necessarily because the story was all that complicated, 
more because of the sheer volume of characters and events to keep up with, and the fact that I was, well, flying by the seat of my pants the entire time, so yeah, that didn't really help. This episode here is designed to help with that burden, and for those that would prefer to have something at hand to keep up with these details, you can download the script of this episode for free off the website from the 30 Years War section that I'll be setting up. I'll provide the links to the description below. It is very important that we're all on the same page. Whether you're reading my book on the 30 Years War or listening to this series, I would want everyone to understand what they are reading and listening to. I don't want you to feel bombarded with names or concepts or to feel overwhelmed by the sheer scale of the whole conflict. With that in mind, here's what this episode will do. First and foremost, it should be said that this episode is part one of three, but that the other two parts will be coming out in a very different format, in talk episode format, and they'll be both released on the 18th of May 2018, as a kind of a sixth birthday present to us. It's not, Poland is not yet lost, and it's certainly not five weeks to run wild, but it's still some pretty enjoyable content, and will serve to really get us in the mood for the 30 Years' War, as we count down to that all-important 400-year anniversary. Second, the format of this episode here will be as simple as I can possibly make it. So the first thing I'll do is introduce the different states within Europe, and when I identify them, I'll give you a very short bio on each, tell you who was ruling over it at the time the Thirty Years' War erupted, and give you a rough estimate via mind map as to where that state resided in Europe, in case you didn't know. The second thing I'll do is look at these figures again and examine the most important people for the Thirty Years' War, with a quick explainer as to why they were important and what they did. I should add that I've been doing a series on social media examining the major characters involved, above all on Facebook, there's shorter versions of this on Twitter as well, and on LinkedIn, believe it or not, so do join me on LinkedIn if you're interested in that kind of thing. But yes, I've been doing this on Facebook and I've got like several bios, fair, reasonable length bios, which may or may not be interesting to you, so we'll form a script of them, complete with a handy little portrait of each character that I'm talking about, and I'll release that as a script free to download as well, just so that you have something to refer to. As far as the timeline of the actual conflict goes, those two talk episodes I just mentioned earlier on, that's what those two talk episodes will cover, so look forward to them. All being well, we should be well prepared for what's to come in this very exciting series. This episode is designed above all to familiarise you with the Thirty Years' War. With its course, characters, controversies, calamities... I ran out of words beginning with C, but I'm sure there are more. Either way, to those familiar to the Thirty Years' War, you're unlikely to find anything new here, but if you just love your Thirty Years' War no matter what the topic or season, then by all means stick around. Also, for those that want to whet their appetite and get a little bit amped up if you want to go that far then stay tuned as well. This is a, It's a fun topic, guys, and we're going to have a bit of fun with it today. For everyone else, especially thinking of those that never listened to our original 30 Years War series in the first place, this episode is for you. Without any further ado then, let's begin. Creating a cast of the important states that took part in the Thirty Years' War is a task not for the faint of heart. One of the first things you have to ask yourself is, where do I draw the line? And by that I mean, 
do we only focus on the large states with names you'll recognize like Austria, Sweden, Spain, France, the Netherlands, etc.? Or do we look at the minor states that boasted important leaders but which no longer exist today or who you may not even have heard of? Venice, Savoy and Alsace were three important players in 1618 and I would wager that most of you would know where they are on the map. But what about Hesse-Darmstadt, Mecklenburg, Brunswick or Baden? Who do we leave out from this cast of characters? And if we do leave states out, who do we include? How do we explain the volume of German potentates running around? How do we explain how certain German princes ruled over several places at once? How do we explain how certain German princes ruled over given principalities which resemble disconnected blobs of territory on the map of Europe? The same way we explain everything else by starting at the bottom and working up. Something we will just have to accept about this era is that Germany, now such a straightforward federal republic in the centre of Europe, was in hundreds of pieces in 1618. What was more, these hundreds of pieces, thanks in large part to inheritance, were split further between sons, so that the names of certain places were duplicated, adding to the confusion. So it was that Baden spat out Baden-Durlach and Baden-Baden, with two ruling houses to match. When the ruler of Hesse died in the late 1500s, his four sons divided his lands into Hesse Castle, Hesse Darmstadt, Hesse Rheinfels, and Hesse Marburg. None of these facts make learning the complexities of the Germans any easier, yet we do need to bear in mind that much of what we consider as Germany today existed within the reach of the Holy Roman Empire. The Holy Roman Empire, or H or E if you're feeling lazy or just sick of saying it over and over again, was a polity of immense complexity and of rich history, which we don't have time to investigate in the detail it deserves. But suffice to say, a millennium of history exists within that polity. And since all Holy Roman emperors traced their origins from the time of Charlemagne and the event of his crowning as Holy Roman Emperor, it's a polity worth investigating. From that point, the HRE was moulded and shaped by all sorts of circumstances, and the position of the emperor was taken up by several different families, with our family, the Habsburgs, only monopolising control over the institution in the mid-1400s. From that point onwards, the Habsburg family became a European institution without parallel on the continent or arguably in European history. And the reason why we've sort of jumped right into the Holy Roman Empire and the Habsburgs is because the Thirty Years' War is impossible to understand without them. Control over the office of emperor was always going to be important, but it was when the Habsburgs married into the Spanish royal house in the late 1400s that matters became still more weighted for the Habsburg family. For so long, the Habsburgs had based themselves as Dukes of Austria, and the Habsburgs are often shorthanded to the House of Austria for this reason. For a good 200 years, though, the Habsburgs also had control of Spain, and with the Habsburg being King of Spain and another being Holy Roman Emperor, the influence and powers of this family seemed supreme, especially when combined with the exploitation and exploration of the Americas. The only Habsburg to have ruled as King of Spain and Holy Roman Emperor at the same time had been Charles V, a figure who were immensely fascinated by, as you may or may not know. But in the mid-1500s, Charles V passed the office of emperor to his brother and the crown of Spain to his son, his son being Philip II of the Spanish Armada fame, for those keeping score at home. 
Obviously, Charles realised that the burden of controlling three quarters of Europe was too much for one man alone. He left the Habsburgs in a position of unrivaled strength and created two branches of the Habsburg family, the Austrian and the Spanish, in the process. The Austrian branch held the Holy Roman Emperor title, but they had many other things going on for them as well. Holy Roman Emperors were elected to the position by seven powers within the Holy Roman Empire, designated as the Electors. And one of these electors was the King of Bohemia. Bohemia corresponds roughly to the lands of the modern-day Czech Republic, but just because the Czech Republic only existed from about the 1920s doesn't mean that in the early 1600s it was a land without its own language, culture or identity, or a distinct relationship with Christianity. Bohemia had all of these in spades in the early 1600s. Bohemia's kings had been elected for some time, but it so happened that a Habsburg, nine times out of ten, tended to also be the elected king of Bohemia, as well as the Holy Roman Emperor. Once he had been confirmed as king of Bohemia, the Habsburg would then shamelessly vote for himself as Holy Roman Emperor, and if the other six electors didn't want to rock the boat, they voted for him as emperor as well. One could ask why Bohemia didn't stop just pretending with its elective monarchy and become a permanent fixture of the Habsburg portfolio instead, but the Bohemians were an immensely proud and historically aware people. They maintained that even though Habsburg tended to be king of Bohemia, it was this way because only the Bohemians elected him to this position in the first place. From this position, the Habsburgs made their ambitions for the Holy Roman Empire happen, and so the throne of Bohemia was a critically important one in Europe, as well as in the Habsburg mind. Remember that. Remember the importance of Bohemia, because this will become very important soon enough. The Austrian Habsburgs possessed what is called the Habsburg Hereditary Lands, based around Austria and positions of East Central Europe. In 1806, when Napoleon dissolved the Holy Roman Empire, its last emperor declared himself the Emperor of Austria, and used these hereditary lands as the basis of his Austrian Empire. If it ever puzzled you to see a state as random as Austria running around with big plans and ambitions up to the First World War, then for that you can thank the Habsburg family and the curious passage of history which enabled the Habsburgs to grab lots of land and then recast their rule over this land as imperial once their stint as Holy Roman Emperors came to an end. We have spoken of the Spanish Habsburgs too, but it would be good to clarify some important points within that branch of the dynasty as well. In 1618, Spain also included Portugal, since the Portuguese royal house had died out, and in 1580, the Spanish king, Philip II of the Spanish Armada fame, just again for those of you keeping score at home, claimed Portugal in the name of one of his ancestors. With Spain and Portugal merging together, their overseas possessions merged as well, and it wouldn't be until 1640 that Portugal rebelled against Spain and broke free. Speaking of revolts and breaking free, one of the most important sideshows running concurrently to the Thirty Years' War was the Dutch revolt against Spain. Considering modern-day relations, it can seem like the strangest thing that the Dutch and Spanish should fight a war against each other, and that Spain could somehow have owned the Netherlands at some point. How does such a strange state of affairs come about? Well, simply put, the answer boils down to marriage. The Dukes of Burgundy ruled over a sprawling set of territories in medieval Europe, known as Burgundy, which included vast portions of eastern France and 
all of the Netherlands and Belgium. It was a very wealthy, prosperous portion of Europe and very densely populated to boot. The Netherlands had a history of industrious, enterprising, adventurous and commercial success stories. And the region, centred upon Antwerp and Amsterdam, the two most important cities within the area, engaged in a worldwide trade network which supercharged the finances of the Habsburg family since the Habsburgs married into the Burgundian house in the 1400s. If you were wondering, yes, the Habsburgs did get around with their marriages, and they did a lot of this getting around in the 1400s. Originally sourced as hailing from a nice castle in Switzerland, the Habsburg family married their way to the top of the European food chain, until, running out of external candidates, they began simply marrying each other, since what could possibly go wrong? In any case, with the onset of the Reformation in the early 1500s, the Habsburgs' careful marriage contracts were complicated by the different stances of the peoples they claimed to rule over. Deeply Catholic in practice and belief, the Habsburgs were perturbed by any appearance of deviation from the old faith, and they reacted harshly to the initial flutters of Protestantism which appeared in North Germany and the Netherlands. When the Spanish upped the ante in persecution, arresting the son of the Prince of Orange, the family tasked traditionally with ruling in Spain's name, this Prince William of Orange, led the Netherlands in revolt against Spain. Everyone in Europe surely expected the Spanish to crush these Dutch rebels mercilessly. After all, Spain was the most supremely powerful entity in the world by the time the revolt broke out in the 1560s, and its power was only set to increase. Under these circumstances, how could the Dutch possibly hold on? To go to long story short, they did hold on, and by our timeline, the Spanish and Dutch were still at each other's throats two generations later, in 1618, even while both powers were, at that point, in a state of truce. By this time, Philip II's son, Philip III, was ruling in Spain, and Prince William of Orange's son, Maurice of Nassau, was ruling the Netherlands, even while the Netherlands was deep down a merchant's republic. I know, I know, it doesn't always make sense, but bear with me. From these unassuming beginnings, the Dutch would go on to defeat their old master and forge for themselves a golden age, based on trade, culture, art, literature, and lots and lots of money. If you've ever visited the Rijksmuseum in Amsterdam, and I've been there twice, it's a lovely, lovely place, and you will in fact need more than one day to get around it properly, then you'll know all the things that the Dutch did once they became independent, and then some. But first, the Dutch would have to defeat the Spanish Habsburgs, become independent, and endure the trials of the Thirty Years' War. If the ambitions of the Austrian Habsburgs with the office of Holy Roman Emperor and the Dutch-Spanish War were two important background narratives for the Thirty Years' War, then another critically important one was that long-running story of competition between the Habsburgs and the French. One could argue that Spain had it very easy in the latter half of the 1500s, largely because the French were enduring a mixture of religious and civil wars which ripped France apart, extinguished its old ruling dynasty, the House of Valois, and invited no small amount of foreign intervention. What began as the French Wars of Religion in the 1570s descended into a war for the French crown between three competing power blocks, which was won by, against all odds, a Protestant by the name of Henry of Navarre. Henry would convert to Catholicism to make the majority of his subjects happy, and by 1598 he made peace with Spain as well. Understanding that France needed to repair after its lengthy traumas, King Henry of Navarre, now Henry IV of France, focused his energies on rebuilding his shattered realm 
and preparing for the next war with the Habsburgs. This period of recuperation would outlive Henry IV, and it wouldn't be until 1635 under Henry's son, King Louis XIII, and the brilliant Cardinal Richelieu, who we are rather familiar with here at WDF Towers, that France made war on the Habsburgs again. The Habsburgs had more than just the French to worry about, though. Far to the east, the Ottoman Empire had carved out a realm for itself, following spectacular victories and the toppling of several old orders. It was the Turks who captured Constantinople, who occupied the Holy Land, and who inflicted such a devastating defeat on Hungary that that kingdom of the Middle Ages ceased to exist and was divided between its neighbours. The Ottomans continued to expand into the Balkans on the Far East, and they controlled a secure set of coastline from Rhodes to Alexandria, with most of North Africa under their magnetic pull and under the Sultan's thumb. Periodically the Turks made war on the Habsburgs, and in the most recent war, if you're living in 1618 that is, from 1594 to 1606, both sides traded their share of wins and losses. With the Habsburgs actually holding their own quite well, the Ottomans could field armies in the hundreds of thousands, and possessed a talent for logistics and organisation far out of the reach of the Europeans. They had a reputation for barbarity, but this reputation likely had more to do with their terrifying successes than the inherent evilness of the Turks themselves. Thankfully for the Habsburgs, though, much like the Turks and French would sometimes team up against them, the Habsburgs could rely on an enemy of the Ottomans to the east in Persia. Safavid Persia was a real threat to the Ottoman Empire, and it sat at the ancient crossroads of the world. At critical points, Persia would renew its war with the Ottomans, thus forcing the Turk to fight a war on two fronts. It was therefore not so simple as the Turk being able to invade the Habsburg lands any time he wished. The Sultan would clearly have to watch his back, but this didn't mean that the Habsburgs could ever fully take their eye off the Ottoman ball. As we said, the Holy Roman Empire contained seven electors, and each of these electors had a say in who the next Holy Roman Emperor would be. The Habsburgs, as we said, tended to be the King of Bohemia, so that left six electoral positions, which I'll go through now. Of these six electors, there were three secular and three ecclesiastical, so we should clear a path through this section of the episode by taking care of the three ecclesiastical electors first. These were the electors of Cologne, Trier and Mainz, all contained a small amount of territory and little practical power, but all three figures tended to be well connected, occupy some important position in the church, generally as an archbishop, and to wield a degree of spiritual authority as a result. All we really need to know about these three guys is that they didn't do all that much during the Thirty Years' War, but that by virtue of their vote at the election of the Emperor, they still held a significant degree of influence. With those three ecclesiastical electors down, we turn now to the three most important secular electors, and it might surprise you to learn, considering the Hasburg penchant for Catholicism, that all three of these secular electors were Protestant. I'll list them in order of importance. First, there was the Elector of Brandenburg in the northeast of Germany, with his capital in Berlin. Second, you had the Elector Palatine, who occupied the Palatinate, which consisted of two chunks of land along the Rhine, the Upper and Lower Palatinate, situated in the western middle of the Holy Roman Empire, along the border, roughly along the border, that is, with France. 
Finally, the most important elector of all was the elector of Saxony, with his capital at Dresden and with a distinguished history of zealous Protestantism behind him. Saxony today, much like Brandenburg and the Palatinate, form integral parts of the Federal Republic of Germany. But in 1618 and until 1871, these territories were important entities in their own right, and their right to independence were represented by two key factors. The first being the very clear and present powers of their ruling families, the House of Wetten in Saxony, Wittelsbach in the Palatinate, and Hohenzollern in Brandenburg. Second, these three electors were also protected and their rights enshrined in the constitution of the Holy Roman Empire, more specifically in the Golden Bull of 1356, which declared who the electors were and what rights they could expect. Even while he was their overlord and they were obliged to obey him, the three electors did not always follow their emperor in every regard. One of the key reasons for this was the Reformation. Once that event fractured the religious unity of the Holy Roman Empire, it became more than merely a question of dynastic competition within Germany, and also an issue of religious, spiritual importance. Under these circumstances, with the Holy Roman Emperor being a Catholic Habsburg, and the people tasked with electing him being Protestants, there was bound to be friction down the line. Fortunately for the Habsburgs, there remained a balance in favour of Catholics, just about. The ecclesiastical electors of Mainz, Cologne and Trier were all Catholic archbishops, and could be expected to vote for a Catholic Habsburg candidate like good electors. The three secular Protestant electors were less predictable, and so it mostly depended on who ruled each of these electorates, at any time. That left the Kingdom of Bohemia, the seventh vote. As we said, Bohemia's kings tended to be Habsburgs, and thus the Habsburgs were given the chance not just to vote for themselves, but also to ensure that the Catholics maintained a majority of four to three in favour of Catholicism and also a Habsburg candidate. However, if the Bohemians decided that they no longer favoured the Habsburgs, perhaps if a Habsburg candidate was too much of a hardline Catholic, for instance, and threatened the religiously complex Bohemian traditions, then it was possible that Bohemia would choose a different king. If the Bohemians did this, if they decided to choose a Protestant, then the balance would be in favour of the Protestants when it came time to elect the Emperor, and if that happened, then the Habsburgs would not be able to guarantee that they'd be successfully elected as the Holy Roman Emperor in the next election. This, in a very simplified nutshell, was the fragile constitutional setup which helped to facilitate the Thirty Years' War. Because the Bohemians did in the end decide, not merely to choose a different king other than the Habsburgs, but to depose the Habsburg king that they did have. Upon doing so, they selected as their king the Elector of the Palatinate. Remember, one of the seven electors. Specifically, one of the three secular electors. This man, the Elector of the Palatinate, was called Frederick V, and he was also the son-in-law of the King of Britain, and extensively connected to Protestant Europe in other important ways. As Frederick made his way to claim his Bohemian throne, both branches of the Habsburg family moved to cut him off. The desires of the Bohemians be damned, they could not allow their monopoly over the office of Holy Roman Emperor, and thus their power base in Germany, to be cut off, and neither could the Spanish Habsburgs. Such issues were the immediate ingredients that touched off the Thirty Years' War, though initially, of course, nobody knew that they would be fighting for this long, 
and matters only truly came to a head once other powers began intervening. If the Austrian and Spanish branches of the Habsburg family, the French and the Dutch were important figures initially, then they were soon met by additionally important powers and royal houses, all eager to make their own mark on the conflict. We mentioned Germany and the seven electors, but the Holy Roman Empire was made up of more than just these states. It was also made up of rich and powerful dukes, one of whom was the Duke of Bavaria, a man named Maximilian, who had the distinction of being one of only two German leaders to live through the entirety of the Thirty Years' War, alongside the Elector of Saxony. Maximilian of Bavaria was a firm friend of the Habsburgs and a pious Catholic to boot, and he was eager to aid both causes in the Holy Roman Empire wherever he could. Thus, when the Bohemian revolt against the Habsburg king began, it was the wealthy Maximilian who loaned money and aided the Holy Roman Emperor, Ferdinand II, by sending him soldiers. It was also Maximilian's ambitions that led him to commit several incriminating, unconstitutional deals, which piqued when Maximilian accepted the electoral title of his neighbour, Frederick V of the Palatinate, remember that guy who accepted the Bohemian throne, which Ferdinand II, the Habsburg Holy Roman Emperor, had offered Maximilian, since he couldn't afford to pay him with actual money. Other German princes deserve mention too, but we'll cross those bridges when we come to them. A great deal of German princes would lend commanders and, of course, manpower to both sides, and since the war began over a constitutional, and some might say also a religious question, within the Holy Roman Empire, it was only fitting that Germany suffered the most from this fallout. For every new power that entered the Thirty Years' War over the subsequent three decades which followed the Bohemian Revolt on the 23rd of May 1618, the crisis in Germany deepened, and the once fertile, plentiful lands of Germany became ravaged and wasted as army after army marched over them in search of food and plunder. This aspect, rather than the actual severity of the battles themselves, was what made the Thirty Years' War so traumatic and damaging to Germany. As each year passed, a new army hungry for resources which did not exist appeared on the horizon, and short of what it actually needed, this army was liable to burn, pillage, murder and rape its way through all that it did not. To the east of the Holy Roman Empire existed the Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania, a power which didn't get directly involved in the Thirty Years' War, and to the east of her again was Muscovy, or the Russian Tsardom as it was beginning to style itself. Within the British Isles ruled the House of Stuart, as James I and VI unified England, Scotland and Ireland for the first time. However, since these powers aren't particularly important to us now, we'll get to them later when the time comes. To the north in Scandinavia was where some really fascinating powers and characters resided though. First you had Denmark, which was the wealthiest kingdom in the Baltic, because its king controlled the Sound, those spaces between the Danish islands, which a ship would have to pass before entering the Baltic Sea to engage in trade. Its king was Christian IV, and he had the distinction, among other things, of very nearly making it to the end of the Thirty Years' War, since he died just as the peace treaties were being written up in spring 1648. Christian IV's neighbour was a man and a power, which we've likely all heard of, and who lent so much dash and colour to the otherwise dreary Thirty Years' War experience, at least if you were asking the Protestants. Gustavus Adolphus, the King of Sweden and Duke of Finland, ruled over this kingdom from 1611 until his death in 1632, and during that 21-year period, 
He established Sweden not as a Baltic backwater, but as an empire in its own right. He utterly transformed the course of the Thirty Years' War by widening this war to include new external powers, and his Chancellor Axel Oxenstierna not only had his own mug and Patreon tier, wink wink, he also has the distinction of being the only Chancellor to survive the entirety of the Thirty Years' War, since he served Sweden in his role from 1613 to 1656. Gustavus Adolphus also provided us with that resounding quote, the Thirty Years' War's equivalent of, if you're not with us, then you're against us, which has become the guiding theme or motto of the series, and has even been known to appear on t-shirts. Whether you love him or loathe him, I would argue that Gustavus was in the first tier of the most important, if not the most important full stop, of figures during the conflict. With Sweden's intervention in 1630, following Denmark's unsuccessful intervention in 1625, the Thirty Years' War became internationalised on a scale never before thought possible. While Gustavus's death ripped the heart out of the Swedish and thus the Protestant fight back against the Habsburgs, this defeat only hastened the intervention of France in 1635 and the true beginning of the phase of the war which set it apart from its predecessors and successors. By 1648, the conflict which began as a constitutional question over Bohemia and the balance of power in the Electoral College had mutated into something far more destructive and terrifying. A peace was made, the famous Peace of Westphalia, but its actual impact and significance is certainly up for debate, a debate we have engaged in and will engage in more later on in the parts of this series. So to summarise then, the Thirty Years' War lasted from 1618 to 48, and it contained the major powers of the two branches of the Habsburg family, first fighting against the elector of the Palatinate, Frederick V, for the crime of trying to take the Bohemian crown from Habsburg hands. In 1621, the truce between the Dutch and Spanish expired, leading to a resumption in that conflict and a super-active Dutch diplomatic network, as the Netherlands provided aid and sanctuary to all those that opposed the Habsburg family. In 1625, this coalition of minor German Protestant princes, Frederick V of the Palatinate and the Dutch, was joined by the Danes, who were utterly trounced in the coming campaigns. By 1630, Sweden finished up its wars with its Russian and Polish neighbours long enough to intervene in the Holy Roman Empire, and its king, Gustavus Adolphus, achieved such a shattering victory in the Battle of Breitenfeld in September 1631 that he reversed the triumphs of the Habsburgs. His death the following year deadened this success, though, and enabled the Habsburgs to recoup their losses, only for the French to go all for broke and intervene in 1635, resuming the war which Henry IV had prepared his realm for since the peace with Spain had been signed in 1598. Hopefully after this recap, or introduction depending on how new you are to me or the Thirty Years' War, Matters are all a bit clearer now. It should go without saying that in every phase of this conflict, diplomacy was undertaken on several juicy levels, and that intrigue, high politics and deceptive deals were the order of the day, especially as more powers were added to the mix and the picture became increasingly convoluted. Added to these concerns were the actions of the Pope, who didn't like to see Catholic France and the Habsburgs fight each other, and the machinations of the Eastern powers like Poland and Russia, and the British Civil War which flared up, and you have a very involved set of years indeed. So I hope you're all ready for them.
So in this episode, we haven't really brought you the name of every power or every ruling figure because I don't want to bombard you, and it's more important now that you get a feel for what the Thirty Years' War is all about than that you feel so afraid of all these details that you want to run away. Two reminders. First, you can access the script of this episode for free on the website by following the link in the description below. And you can also acquire the document which gathers together all those little bits on social media I've been sharing, which should hopefully make the Thirty Years' War a little bit more clear. That is, if you like to read and have something to refer to while you're listening in. In addition, remember you can get a better grasp of the timeline of the Thirty Years' War, as well as some notes on diplomacy, human agency, the major events of that conflict, by listening to the two-part talk episode between myself and Sean, which will be out on Friday the 18th of May. So make sure to check that out if you want more details on what you've talked about here. On the 23rd of May, we'll be hitting you with a prologue of the defenestration of Prague to mark 400 years since it occurred. And on the following Monday, the 28th of May, we'll be properly introducing all of the concepts of this series, its general course, and my plans for it and the book, which you should definitely pre-order right now. With all of this being said, I'd like to remind you to connect with us on social media, be it through Facebook or Twitter, and of course to say a huge thanks for joining me for this episode. I hope you can tell I am really excited to begin this new 30 Years War series, and I know a great number of you guys are too, so I'll see you on the battlefield. My name is Zach, and you've been listening to an introductory episode on our 30 Years War series. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.